Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. I bid you welcome. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you hear. Hi, this is Larry Norman. And once again, you're back here listening to True Tunes Radio. People are complicated, aren't we? Along with creativity exists self-destruction. Along with imagination exists self-deception. Alongside passion sits prejudice, and next to the potential for self-sacrifice and nobility sits delusion. It's all in there, baked into this fascinating, terrible, beautiful cake called humanity. It should follow, then, that a fully formed spiritual life and a fully engaged creative mind would take all of that into account, right? I mean, the one thing we all have in common, everyone listening to my voice right now, is that we are all human beings. We are on a journey together, trying to make sense of the beauty and the madness, right? For those of us who identify with the gospel story of grace, we have a rich history of redemption to draw upon, don't we? An ongoing saga of fatally flawed characters being used by a loving God, often despite themselves. I'm thinking of biblical figures like Abraham, Jacob, David, Peter, Thomas, and numerous others. Why then do we still find it so hard to be honest about our stories today and joyful about the glimmers of beauty that shine through the brokenness? It seems we are constantly torn between the temptation to gloss over the imperfections as if we need to sell a better product or to demonize the damage holding out for some kind of self-made perfection in this life. What if the truth and the beauty lies somewhere in the tension between demonization and deification? And the only way we get to see that truth and beauty is to discern it for ourselves there in the middle. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and over there about 600 miles to my right sits my co-producer, Bruce A. Brown. On this episode of the True Tunes Podcast, with great fear and trembling and some serious delight, we are going to introduce you to Mike Norman, the real-life son of a legend, as we talk about his complicated, painful, and ultimately beautiful relationship with his father, the man many have referred to as the father of Jesus music, and who counted people like Bono and the members of U2, Frank Black of the Pixies, and even Bob Dylan as fans, the late Larry Norman. We're also going to play a few minutes of an interview I did with Larry about 20 years ago that has never been previously printed or broadcast. Together we will revisit and try to make sense of the messy, difficult story of one of the most confounding people I have ever known. Sipping whiskey from a paper cup. 
Drown your sorrows till you can't stand up Take a look at what you've done to yourself Why don't you put the bottom back on the shelf Yellow finger from your cigarettes Your hands are shaking while your body sweats Why don't you look in the Jesus you got the answers Larry Norman is certainly one of the most fascinating, frustrating, and controversial figures in rock and roll history. He was the kind of character the word enigmatic seems to have been invented for. There is no denying his creative power and influence, especially in his early years. While he may not have been the first person to intuitively match the countercultural message of the gospel with the muscle of rock and roll, he was among the first Jesus rock professionals to register on a national level. He had an instinct for songwriting, performing, and myth-making that fit the era perfectly. He knew the power of symbolism and embodied the image of the outsider perfectly. He was right in step with the main flow of late 60s and early 70s rock and roll, sometimes directly lifting elements from artists like Bob Dylan, Neil Young, or the band. For the thousands of kids getting turned on to the gospel via the Jesus movement, Larry Norman was a star. Before there was such a thing as contemporary Christian music or a separate Christian music industry, this long-haired, high-voiced rebel troubadour was a scene unto himself. You can be a righteous rocker or a holy roller, you can be most anything. You can be a Leon Russell or a super muscle, you can be a corporate king. You can be a wealthy man from Texas or a witch with heavy hexes, but with that However, like many great artists, Norman was a complicated and by some accounts a difficult and even manipulative person to work with on a personal level. He left a trail of broken relationships in his wake. After years of controversy and often inexplicable behavior, Norman revealed that he had suffered what we would now call a traumatic brain injury when a piece of the cabin of an airplane fell on his head in 1978. That injury, he claimed, caused serious cognitive impairment that lasted years and affected his ability to think, to make music, and to relate to people. However, many who had been hurt by Larry questioned this explanation. Unfortunately, one result of the often self-inflicted drama surrounding Larry Norman has been a sort of dichotomy amongst much of his audience. On one side, there are his defenders, those who deny any and all charges against him. To them, he cannot have done any wrong. On the other side, there sits a well-orchestrated litany of grievances. The implication seems to be that this hugely influential artist must either be a saint or a sinner. He couldn't possibly be both. Why can't you behave? Why can't you be good? You don't even try. I became a fan of Larry's music when I was about 10 or 11 years old. I had certainly heard several of his songs before that. My mother was a big fan of the gentler Jesus music sounds. But when a camp counselor played Larry's rough and tumble hard edge songs for me, they resonated with me in a deep way. It's no exaggeration to say that my original vision for True Tunes back when I was a teenager in the 80s was based on the idea that artists like Larry, along with bands like the 77s, Daniel Amos, Resban, and a handful of others, should be presented to my generation in a more relevant way. 
As I started to learn how to write about music, I always dreamed about interviewing Larry Norman. So, as I started to hear about the stories and scandals, the pedestal I had him on began to crumble. I wanted to interview him 30 years ago when the first iteration of True Tunes was at its peak. And to ask him about everything, I proposed to give him an open and honest platform, a generous and grace-filled place to just lay it all out there. In my youthful naivete, I thought maybe I could help clear the air between him and the artists that were so wounded by him. Maybe it was all just a misunderstanding. If, as his lyrics seemed to suggest, he was just misunderstood, then we could fix that. I proposed to write a cover story about him for the magazine, and he told me several times that he'd grant me that interview. But he always canceled for one reason or another. That went on for about 10 years. Then. One morning, during the Cornerstone Festival in the year 2000, I bumped into Larry in the lobby of the hotel where the artists stayed during the fest. He said hello and we chatted for a few minutes, and eventually he asked if I wanted to do that interview we'd been talking about for so long. I said sure, thinking that, again, it probably wouldn't happen, but then he asked if I was available that very afternoon. I said I was. My friend Jeremy Gadowskis and I went to his hotel room with my trusty mini-disc recorder, and we ended up talking for over an hour and a half. I recorded this for True Tunes Radio, the streaming service we offered back then, but that whole thing fell apart before I had a chance to broadcast it, so it just sat on the shelf until now. In fact, I actually lost the discs until a couple of years ago. So here are some clips from that conversation about 20 years ago now with Larry Norman himself. Now you have one son, right? I have a son named Michael 15 years ago. Wow, that's amazing. He's 15 now. I saw him when he was a baby, I think. Um, and you know, he, he wants to not be a musician. He wants to be a preacher. That's awesome. So are you in yeah. contact with him quite a bit? Well, he lives right down the road from me. I, that's one reason I moved to Salem. Oh. Okay. That's where his mom moved. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So is your family, is that thing, um, have they come to understand some of the other things that were going on? Did they even know? Did Sarah even know about the head injury and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, Sarah was really frustrated because I would go to the store for uh, milk for dinner, and, you know, come home in half an hour, and uh, three hours later I'd wander home with some books. I just forgot why I went out. I'd be drive by the bookstore and go, hey, what was the title I read in Time Magazine? There was some really good... I'm going to go in there and see. And I'd just forget time and come home. Dinner was ruined. No milk. Just very frustrating for her. I don't know how she put up with it. You know? Insane, really. It was like, it was like being crazy. So when I was on one side of my brain, I was logical. When I was on the other side of my brain, I was creative. But never did the two meet. So I could write a song in a creative burst. But when I shifted over to the logical side, I couldn't write anything. But I could start engineering, producing but I couldn't be creative in my producing because I couldn't say, is there enough over overdubs? Does, do we need a different guitar solo? Do we need more harmonies? That's creative. So when I was in the studio, it was when I felt in the mood. So I just kept shifting back and forth. But uh, it is, I would think bipolar, I was separated in two halves. It was, it was hell, it was horrible. You know, I, I, I feel so sorry for my dad. I, I apologized to him so many times for what I put him through. You know, I've written letters to Sarah, and and uh, we don't talk about bad stuff when we're together. We just talk about good stuff. But but then I've written letters so that she doesn't feel I want her to respond. I've written letters to her, just apologizing in so many different ways for all the chaos. And I, I've been confessing to my audiences for a few years now, apologizing to them for squabbling with Randy 
Stonehill with Terry Taylor because I didn't realize the dynamics until this last year when the internet made it really clear all the people that f were affected by it. It's like wow. So I I, I find it nothing but but uh, heartwarming to be able to have an opportunity to come to festivals and do my own concerts so I can do things like apologize to everybody for all the fighting. It was it was wrong. It was immature. And I tell them it's pride. Uh, stubbornness, blindness. So uh, if anybody's uh, checking out the True Tunes interview, I want to apologize to you too. I, I repent and, uh, and confess and ask forgiveness for fighting with Randy and Terry or anybody else I've ever hurt for no reason. My life is filled with songs but I just couldn't get along without my friends. And I'm happy now, but when this good life ends, I know a better one begins. How's your health now? It's great. I've been in the hospital 17 times. And I have not been in the hospital but twice since moving up to Oregon. And I haven't been in the hospital at all lately. I, I feel like Superboy, you know? <laughs> it's, it's great. That's great. And so your heart's good? And... It's great. And we'll see, now that's another thing. Uh, people didn't even believe I had a heart attack. They thought it was a rumor, like I'd fake a heart attack. You can't fake a heart attack. The EKG says whether you've had one or not. Part of your heart's missing, or it's not. You can't, you can't make part of your heart go missing, you know, and die. It's a heart attack. Can you see, though, now, now that you're thinking clearly, you're feeling good, can you see how that string of events between, say, Solid Rock going through the whole thing with the, the head injury, the going to Europe, kind of exiling yourself, uh, all, can you see how it's hard for people to just, you know, all of a sudden get all that stuff and, and how can, it can be hard to believe that? Can you understand it from that perspective? Oh, well, I can understand what I've read, you know? <laughs> Every time a reporter says something that's wrong, then that's taken for being the facts. So I've been doing this for Christ and not for popularity. So if people decide I'm a bad guy, God knows the truth. I'm going to keep on saving people, you know, bringing them to the, the cross. And, and um, I may not make records. I don't know. At that time, I didn't know. With the brain damage, I couldn't record a new album. But we had more people come forward than ever before. So that told me that I'm still following Christ. Whether or not I can make a record, that's up for other people to decide or my dad to get mad at me about <laughs> for forgetting to deliver. So it just made me want to, you know, stop worrying about everything. My dad tried to answer a lot of the rumors. Oh yeah, right. I don't really have a verse to go here, so I'll just let the band play it one time. Play it, Johnny. Play it, boy. Yeah, that's nice. had uh, one thing you could go back and not do or one thing you could go back and do that you think would you know one big regret say what would it have been I think probably I would have just recorded my own songs preached the gospel myself not tried to help a bunch of other people because somebody would have helped them they had talent they would have they would have surfaced at some point and I would have just preached the gospel harder I, I would have I would have been, I would have read the Bible more, so I would have understood it more. You know, certainly if I only get one wish, 
that's what I would change, and I couldn't change the fact that I didn't know God loved me until 1990. Uh, I, I couldn't change the fact that I got on the wrong airplane and had the accident, or that I went to the wrong hospital and had the heart attack. But I would say, uh, it's kind of like what Billy Graham says, uh, that if he had to do it all over again, he'd read the Bible more, and he would just pray more, just to prepare yourself more for the battle. You can't create the opportunities. I can't say, I will myself to go to Russia now and do a concert there. You have to get an opportunity. But what you can will yourself to do is be more prepared to go. I would encourage this for artists. I, When I opened up for Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin and The Doors, people like that, I became aware of their world and their perspective, their arguments, their ideas, and so I was able to address some of those questions that they were expressing, which I might not hear from their fans, because you can't just go out and meet people and, you know, on the street and ask them, what are, you, what are your concerns? Artists have a way of distilling concerns into a focused viewpoint. So in my music, I address a lot of those issues. I think that that's why it had an effective result on the hearts of non-Christians, regardless of how Christians feared it at the beginning or now think they love it. It wasn't for them, it was never for Christians, it was for non-Christians. It's medicine for people who are sick. So I would think that artists today, if they will pay attention to Marilyn Manson and listen to these other artists out there, and analyze what is it they're addressing, what, what are the needs of the young people, what are the issues that they're locked up in, and then address those issues through their music. They might have more effect on non-Christians. Until we do that, we're going to remain in a subculture where Christian music is just an entertainment for Christian kids, and if you're a Christian band, that means you can sell Christian t-shirts, Christian pendants, bumper stickers, baseball hats, and things like that to your Christian fans, but you will never make much of a dent in Satan's world. You will never, as a warrior, cross the enemy line behind the territory held by Satan and snatch away some of his victims and, and redeem them in the light. So I feel very sad for Christian music that is not more effective. I can only say that the music is fabulous, the bands are better than ever, there's musicianship here that never existed in the 70s. I will never play, if I live to be a million, I will never play as well as some of these people are playing right today. The musicianship's great, the artistry's great, the light shows are, are great, you know, the standards of sound, I mean, here at the festival, it's great to have good lights so you can see things and color so you can, you know, enjoy this thing. But until we really become followers of Christ, pick up the cross and go through our life into the highways and byways, preaching the gospel, we're only going to be a subculture. We're not going to be effective. I relaunched True Tunes with an article about chasing Larry Norman around Estes Park, Colorado in the summer of 1986 when I was just 16 years old. I'll link to it in the show notes page for this episode, but I mention it here just to set the stage for you. I don't want you to labor under the misconception that I am somehow objective about all of this. Larry Norman was an enormous influence on me, but he also kind of broke my heart. Ultimately, I think I'm glad that he did. 
There's a lot more to this conversation and it will be released one way or another before too long. Make sure to sign up on our email list for updates. I'm hoping to publish an updated version of my book, Raised by Wolves, sometime next year, and I will be including elements of this interview in that book as well. Do I think that Larry's words will clear up any of the lingering controversy about his life? Probably not. But we will not attempt to relitigate the case here today. No, I'm going to try to approach this from a different perspective. One that dropped into my lap when Larry's son walked down my driveway a couple of weeks ago. I first met Mike back in 2001 when he accompanied Larry to Cornerstone. My band, The Wayside, along with some other friends, backed up Larry for his main stage set that year, and I got to sit with Mike for a while during our rehearsal at a local church. He was a teenager back then. It's been about 20 years since that day, though, and 12 since Larry passed away. Mike came to Nashville to see the Electric Jesus film make its Nashville Film Festival premiere, and we invited him to a private party with the cast. I asked if he'd be interested in coming back the next day to sit down for a conversation about his life with Larry. To my surprise and delight, he agreed. So, with his lovely wife Tiffany sitting with us, here is my conversation with Mike Norman, recorded at my home in East Nashville. has got to be the most controversial, mercurial, hard to understand, fascinating figure, uh, in my opinion, of the people that I've known and worked with. Yeah. At what point in your life did you kind of get, oh, my dad is something different? (laughs) Yeah, uh, there definitely was a defining moment for me. Uh, it was during the Omega Europa tour, which was 93. Um, we did a performance uh, in Sweden, and um, there was some deteriorating castle that they kind of just didn't repair it. They created a stage out of it and uh, just huge outdoor venue. You know, no one counted the crowd, but I'm assuming there's about 20,000 people at this show. And, and that was the first time I saw him play a really large show. Not a church for a couple thousand, but 20,000 outdoor a festival type event. I mean, that's when it hit me. He used to have me out on stage to, uh, you know, say a prayer or, or he, he would do a little interview with me or something. He just thought it was really fun uh, and the crowd thought it was fun too. And that night, it, it really weirded me out because of how many people were there. Uh, that was actually one of the last times I went on stage with him. You'd be about eight years old at that point? Yeah, roughly. Yeah, eight yeah. or nine, something like that. Wow. Yeah. And your parents had separated when you were pretty young. Yeah, like in 87. So You're two. two. Yeah, two and a half. So your whole life, basically, they've been divorced. Yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. When it comes to 
that like the relationship that you had um with him not being in the home all the time how did that influence your understanding of who he was and what he was doing how present was he in your life well i think it definitely had a big impact um so i did move in with him when i was between 13 and 14 um, and then he had full custody so so things really changed then but up until that point um you know i was only able to see him every other weekend we'd split up some of the holidays and then uh you know custody allows six weeks uh in the summer so on the weekends uh, he still lived in la we lived up in oregon so we would meet at a, a little motel city center motel it's not there anymore i think he just wanted me to have as much fun as possible because it's a weird inv- it's weird for a kid to go to a hotel twice a month and hang out with their dad i mean i don't know anybody else has been through that but he was he was spending time with you and, and then also taking you to to shows about that time so you were kind of exposed to the artist side of what he was doing yeah yeah so you know during the school year had to be in school on monday monday through friday of course um so the weekends was you know mtv michael jackson music videos us impersonating the moves on the bed um you know coke and m&ms i mean it was just total party uh on the weekends and my mom hated it of course because uh, then i'd be all sugared up and no sleep and i'd do terrible school the next couple days um poor mom um yeah but in the summers i'd get to go to the festivals and um you know i i know that later on in his career you know, his legacy really held on stronger and in a larger way in Europe. And so huge uh, festivals uh, in the summer, usually kind of in the Scandinavian part of uh, Europe and the UK. That's where I begin to first see him as an artist was those, right. those summer tour experiences. Even if you don't believe it's gonna come true Even if you don't believe it's gonna happen to you. When you look at his uh, impact, and especially the the first, you know, uh, ten years or so, say sixty eight, sixty nine to yeah. to the uh, mid to late seventies, um, and you look at everything that was happening in the world, everything that was happening in the subculture, and then what he was doing creatively and and everything. What how does that strike you now like as you go back and look at that as i've gotten older it's been interesting to um to remember my 20s and early 30s which is kind of the age he would have been in those times um, to think about where my mind and my development is now where his would have been and the burdens he carried and the resistance he faced and the message that he was convicted and compelled to speak regardless of you know whatever denomination banned him whichever you know christian music distributor abandoned him you know and and i know his parents didn't always get what he was doing i don't think anybody necessarily always got what he was doing even if they were sort of on the same page or supportive i i think he uh he challenged even his closest friends and pushed pushed the limits so to speak so yeah Lord, if I got my ticket, can I ride? Lord, if I got my ticket, can I ride? Lord, if I got my ticket, can I ride? Up to heaven on that morning. When did you start to become aware of the more controversial interpersonal 
mm-hmm. uh, strangeness, all of the kind of drama. Not the Rock is of the Devil stuff, because that was boring. But uh, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> but the stuff that was kind of, there was real relationship problems and mm-hmm. he said, she said, or he said, he said kind of stuff. When did that kind of come into your awareness? Oh, gosh. Uh, pretty young. When I was really young, I just, I had no context. I didn't know what Solid Rock was. I didn't know what CCM was. I didn't understand the the really um, chaotic evolution of where music started and how it became this industry, whatever you want to call it. I didn't get that when I was really little. But I mean, um, from a young age, I heard about Solid Rock and the different artists on the label and um, who hurt him and who he might have hurt and how the label fell apart and all, all that. But you heard of, it from his perspective. From, from his perspective. Right. And I, I think he uh, watered down a lot of things just based on my age and me not knowing any of these people personally or understanding enough about just how the, the industry works. But over time, we kept revisiting those things and my understanding grew in my teen years and right. early 20s. So um, since his death and the... the documentary comes out that's sort of an expose and mm-hmm. um and then a book comes out that's based strictly on his materials and stuff mm-hmm. you kind of have these extremes of either larry norman's the devil or larry norman's this angel what do you make of this mm-hmm. this dichotomy this larry norman fixation that some people have in this uh, how do you how do you understand this you know, I know that there is a group of people that need to keep hammering this out and that really want to know what really happened and what didn't happen and, and uh, who got a fair shake and who got the short stick um, in, in these narratives. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I'm tired of the conversation. <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I can't speak for, um, you know, what he sees now that he sees clearly um but you know i i I know that the true um heart within him would have wanted reconciliation and wanted to work through these things um you know we 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 often hold back based on fear and um he he had a lot of expectations a lot of burdens he carried whether he needed to or not um i think i think uh i think that held him back from probably doing that that deeper interpersonal work and that reconciliation with people I don't get it, but I know that it's really important to some people that um, are still trying to figure out what really happened. Soul seeker, I run alone into the night. Soul seeker, how can you know that you are right? It seems to me that the whenever we kind of take a, an extreme position on either side we're trying to resolve tension that's probably not meant to be resolved um how how has this legacy impacted you has it been difficult to be larry norman's son um he he died when i was 22 i mean i i barely was out on my own i just had recently gotten married you know i i uh didn't have a lot of space from it between childhood and adulthood um so just as far as developmentally transition yeah just really kind of in a awkward transition um but i really you know he really wanted me to to carry on the legacy and to 
carry on the company and all, all those types of things. And from a young age, I didn't want it. I really respected him. It, it wasn't about that. But I really f felt called to, you know, my own kind of ministry and leading uh, in my life since eight years old, which I know is no one knows what they really want to do <laughs> at eight years old and then actually sticks to it. You know, um, it, it's funny as a teenager, I even learned that there is something called social work or human services. There, I had no term for it. Right. Um, and you know, when I was eight, I just thought, well, I want to serve people whether I can make a living or I'm on the street with, with the person I'm with, you know, helping. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, okay, there's a field and okay, I can go to school for it. And, you know, I mean, that kind of all evolved with older, the older years. Um, so I didn't want to be a part of it. Um, I really inherited, I think, his appreciation for art and music, um, his love of film, his yeah, just his, his love of artists and poetry and, you know, deep philosophical uh, lyrics and thought. Um, but I can't play any any instrument, and um, and I don't want to. I I just thought, I, I we don't need one more Norman that can play a guitar, you know? <laughs> I'm just going to do something different, because I need yeah. to. So, yeah, yeah. I, I just really separated myself from it at a pretty young age. Right. And you've stayed pretty much away from the the industry of Larry Norman as well, like in terms mm -hmm. of engaging with fans and partaking in even interviews and stuff like that, talking yeah. about him and all that stuff, because, uh, well, for one thing, so many of us fans are just nuts. Have people been gracious to you? Have they been kind to you? Or have people unleashed? Like, has it been a harmful thing with you? I think the fans that I know that um, had a healthier perspective where he impacted them, maybe was huge in their faith, huge in their life in some way. If they had a healthy perspective of him, those are the fans that I've tend to not lose complete contact with over the years that just knew he was a person and they liked me. And they liked me as... Mike, another person, not the son of that that idol that they worship. Um, you know, uh, the the ones that have demonized him and and um, his lineage destroyed and his history erased. Um, I, I mean, of course, I stayed away from those people. Right. You know, um, because somehow they also associate me with whatever they're angry about and uh, want me to somehow answer for the crimes that maybe were committed. You know. Um, and then the people that that, that worship him, I, I haven't really spoken with them either, you know, um, be, because, yeah, I, just there is there is no one that is worth um, demonizing or worshiping in this world. And it doesn't matter who that it just doesn't matter who that figure is. You probably have people in your head you're thinking of right now with that statement and it and just no one deserves either I built a mansion on the sand it turned out just as I had planned it stood so tall and looked so grand on the outside what are some of your favorite Larry songs ones that you still go to and enjoy listening to I uh, I often of course listen to the first four records you know, upon this rock, only visiting this planet, 
so long ago the garden and uh, in other land i revisit those often sentimentally uh home at last stop this flight those are my records and you know you'll hear my yeah. voice as a baby on <laughs> some of the songs right. um you know uh the the night that uh my mom and i drove away to oregon he wrote that song somewhere out there yeah. which was just everything he wished for me as an adult um you know it, in his mind he didn't know if he'd ever see me again um things mm. weren't drafted up for official um you know um custody and visitation that stuff wasn't drawn up yet he just saw me getting in a jeep and going to another state he just he had fear that he'd maybe never see me again so he wrote this really amazing song about all the things he wished for me um and i'd like to think that that song was a prayer and that it's been answered you know um i don't have a baby yet but uh i have a wonderful wife long loving committed relationship serving God and suffering with Christ and those in poverty and illness and the people I work with in my uh, volunteer work and my paid work. Um, I'm in love with Jesus. I don't get the church. I don't have a place. I don't belong to the church. I belong to the body of Christ um, because that includes other ragamuffins or people in the fringe, whatever you want to call us. Um, so, but, but I just, I, I'm more in love now with God that I have no idea what my what my title is in the Christian hierarchy um, than I ever have been when I felt like maybe I had a, a, an identity or a home to belong to. So I think that prayer was answered. And yeah, so that's what I go to when I want to remember what his heart was for me. Because I don't think that heart changed as I got older, even if he couldn't communicate those things um, as well outside of songs. Well, I hope that somewhere out there is a woman for you. And I hope that someday waiting is a baby or two Cause the best gifts in life are kids and wife I've never wanted to be no star And I'm afraid that God is still the only reason that I pick up my guitar Do you have any uh, advice for people who are trying to find a way to live and find peace living with complicated parents or even legacies of parents, parents that have gone on and they're trying to find peace with uh, somebody that's gone, but they're still with you. They're still, you know, they're still spiritually, emotionally with you. Wow. It is a very hard and long road you know, I think there's phases, kind of like there's stages of grief. Um, you know, I went through years of being angry at my dad. I went through years of kind of idolizing or worshiping him in my own way. Sometimes all I can remember is the painful moments. And other times uh, I'll meet someone like you that will bring me a story or say something. And it'll remind me, oh, he was that way. He was really funny. He was really charming. Um, you know, he did help you know strangers in need and, and people on the fringe and the, yeah i i think um i think we all need to give ourselves grace to allow where we're at to be where we're at to feel no shame for whatever stage that is um i think it's important to find people around you that uh can let you say what you need to say um you know so for me um, i haven't been able to say anything negative 
uh, about my dad. Um, and I still don't publicly, and, and for good reason, because that can always be fuel to further destroy something or that could be posted in some fan page or I, you know, that that's, what's so sad about this. So finding, uh, you know, private, safe, healthy relationships with people that are not connected to your lineage, um, and, mm. and don't care. They're, they have no stake in the <laughs> right. game. Um, mm. those are the people you want to go to where you can actually say, yeah, my dad was famous, but, um, he hurt more than any other person in the world. And yeah, my dad was famous and I know that he loved me, um, passionately, but, Sometimes I can't remember that because uh, there's so many years when he was sick or some of that happened when I was really young. And so I forget and uh, I need to be reminded. So, yeah, I just it's I think it's just about grace for yourself um, and finding confidence, you know, confidants, people right. that you can safely share that with. That's great. Well, I hope that when you're older, you will understand why your life One turning point has been even that idea that negative things, like when we when we think about that idea of negative things about somebody versus positive things about yeah. somebody, that sometimes that even becomes a an unhelpful uh, detour, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as opposed to just things. Like things are just things; they just are. And uh, even the fact that somebody's uh, unproductive, hurtful actions mm-hmm. that come usually or often from areas of woundedness in themselves, yeah. blind spots, uh, whatever it is, illness, yeah. that yeah. even those things, if we get to them from a certain perspective, also provide us an example of grace. And I think the only other thing I'd add is um, uh, sometimes I like to translate what was said. Um, you know, so maybe he said something critical, um, but if you really translate that, it it's not criticizing for the sake of criticism. It's uh, it's criticism for the sake of protecting me from something, for desiring um, a better outcome than he perceived I may have. You know, um, so I, I uh, you know, he made comments about me being overweight. We'll just throw that out as an example. Um, even though it really hurt, um, I can go back to that and think he wanted me healthy. He wanted me to, um, you know, attract a beautiful person that I'd be happy with, you know, in a marriage partner. He, uh, you know, wanted me to be respected and, and not judged by my weights so that people would see my heart inside, you know, for example. Um, so I know that's a personal uh, example, but going back to those moments and those, uh, you know, those times of criticism and playing those dark tapes in my head um i can translate it and you really see the heart the loving heart of the father even though it came out through a critical voice um yeah. so that's really helped me uh that's a great as example some things yeah although mike has kept his hands off his father's musical legacy one album that he has had input on is the long-awaited revisiting this planet project a re-recording of the classic album by longtime larry fan kevin max 
We've heard this impressive John Mark Painter produced project and can't wait to unveil it for you in the near future. We're hoping to have Kevin on the podcast soon. Before we wrapped up our conversation, I asked Mike for some information on how that came together. He explains. It's interesting because it's a it's a it's all Larry's songs, yeah. but it's a Kevin record. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not a. It's Sounds not like his solo work. Yeah. It's it's a Kevin yeah. Max record. Yeah. But he's just playing those songs. So what's what's your connection to to that? Kevin's given me more um, more credit and more creative control and and weight in this process than um, than I really needed. You know, I kept saying, Kevin, this is your record. It's been his dream since 2001 around when we met uh, to do this record and it just kept not working out. Um, I just felt like I needed to reach out to Kevin and become a friend of his if he would be open to it. Um, I felt a connection to him from childhood and my dad connected with him. And so I reached out 2017, we met in 2018 and he said, hey, I've been wanting to do this record for (laughs) over 10 years and uh, you know, almost 20 years now and it's just never worked out. what do you think? So we started talking about it and then he started it. He checked in with me all the time, constantly. What do you think of this demo? What about the song order? What do you want in the liner notes? You know? Wow. And so many times I, I said, you gotta stop asking me cause this is your record. You know, like, I love you. Thank you for really giving me a voice <laughs> in this, but I want you to do what you do, which is create beautiful art. And I'm here more for the ride than to than to steer the ship. It it was fun though. You will hear my voice on six o'clock news oh, as the airline yeah. steward. Nice stewardess. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. So that was a fun twist. But it's a great project, and uh, and I'm hoping for a lot of healing and reconciliation to come out of that too. Um, that that's a big goal me and kevin both have for it so that's great we'll see we'll see where it goes awesome yeah, yeah that, I'm, i i didn't realize your level of connection to that that's great yeah yeah very cool well man thanks for being here we look forward to staying in touch awesome thanks john all right good afternoon ladies and gentlemen and welcome before moving forward with our normal presentation of safety we need to remind everyone aboard this flight that at this time we also are enforcing all safety precautions under the I want to thank Mike for talking with us. Considering how, well, let's just say passionate some of his father's fans can be, I wouldn't blame him for disconnecting from that legacy completely. This conversation has been helpful for me, though, as I think through the wider issues around grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Don't go away. The True Tunes podcast will be back shortly. We're back with the True Tunes podcast. I think it's time to crank up the True Tunes jukebox and dive into some of Larry's music. Just what was all this fuss about anyway? There's a reason we're still talking about this guy's music 50 years later. All right, the tubes are really nice and warmed up and we've loaded her up with records. So we're gonna take a little tour through some of Larry Norman's most important work here. Here, I'm putting on my black leather jacket. It's always got some change in the pocket. Let's see what we can do. And know how hard I try to tell you I love you But something holds me back when I try to tell you I love you I love you I love you. 
Larry Norman got his start with the rock band People, who scored a national hit with the song I Love You in 1968. But he soon left that band and moved from his home in the San Jose area to Los Angeles and began writing musicals for Capitol Records. You can hear both the Broadway influence as well as the psychedelic elements of People on his first solo project. Upon This Rock, released by Capitol in 1969, is a trip. The record opens with the riffy and heady You Can't Take Away the Lord, a song that, aside from the lyrics, would have fit perfectly on late 60s AM radio. Those drums, though. This level of syncopation was enough to get Larry Norman blasted by well-known preachers and fundamentalists, but the newly converted Jesus freaks loved him. Sweet Sweet Song of Salvation is one of the tunes that reveals Norman's innate talent and instinctive connection to the moment he was in. It was a crowd-pleasing hippie anthem that crossed over into the church, spawned countless copies, and was certainly part of the birth of what we now call modern worship music. But the song that really put this album on the map and marked Larry as one of the architects of a new genre was I Wish We'd All Been Ready. The apocalyptic ballad produced with all of the emotion of a Broadway musical and all of the theology of a dispensationalist's fever dream painted a mournful portrait of the moment right after the rapture, an ecclesiological event that captured the same kind of existential dread many in that era were feeling about escalation of possible atomic war. I Wish We'd All Been Ready, which would soon be covered by many other artists, was exactly the kind of song the budding Jesus People movement needed. Even many conservative churches and pastors that hated Norman's more hard-edged rock material adored this song for how perfectly it scared the hell out of people. A man and wife asleep in bed, she hears a noise and turns her head. Wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. 
Upon This Rock is a really interesting album. It demonstrates Norman's theatricality, his compositional sophistication, and his raw instincts. It's worth remembering also that while this album was later licensed for distribution by a gospel label, it was created for Capitol Records. This was not made by or for anything like a Christian music industry. Larry made this record for everyone. Darkness can't hide much longer The spirit is getting stronger You keep the dance halls humming But the end of the age is coming I searched all around the world to find As he developed as an artist and as a brand, Norman very quickly began to take on an entrepreneurial role as well. Shortly after the release of Upon This Rock, he started his own independent label, Street Level, with a small donation from none other than Pat Boone, and recorded some Rough Around the Edges albums for himself and his new protege, Randy Stonehill. After spending some time in England and working at Air Studio with the Beatles producer George Martin as an arranger, Larry Norman emerged in 1972 with an album that he said he crafted for all of the disillusioned hippies. Only Visiting This Planet, which has been frequently called one of, if not the, best Christian albums of all time, was created for MGM Verve Records with a clear eye towards the mainstream rock world, not just the budding Christian subculture. I want the people to know that he saved my soul But I still like to listen to the radio They say rock and roll is wrong, we'll give you one more chance I say I feel so good, I gotta get up and dance I know what's right, I know what's wrong I don't confuse it All I'm really trying to say Is why should the devil have all the good music And I feel good every Only Visiting This Planet is both timeless and fully a product of its moment. The album cover features a perfectly framed picture of Norman holding his head in seeming confused bemusement, surrounded by the noise of civilization. He stands there, representing all of us, not as a polished, airbrushed gospel singer or a leather-clad, fist-in-the-air rocker, but more like someone stuck in the middle. He was in the world, but not of it. The songs flowed from that same place. Though this album never made the sales charts, there are several hits that have stood the test of time with his fans. Why Don't You Look Into Jesus? Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? And Righteous Rocker do much to define the term Jesus Rock as they amp up the boogie from anything heard on Upon This Rock. I Am the Six O'Clock News addresses not faith or the gospel per se, but the growing obsession Americans were developing with the brand new phenomenon of television news coverage of the Vietnam War. The song was heavy, dark, cynical even, and prescient. I got a ticket for Southeast Asia. I pack my camera and press card badge. They only pay me to stay though.
Taking pictures of burning houses Colored movies of misery I see the flash of guns How rare the mud becomes I've got a close-up view The socio-political perspectives continued on Reader's Digest. The Rolling Stones are millionaires, the flower children, Paul Bears. Beatles said all you need is love and then they broke up. Jimmy took an overdose, Janice followed so close. The whole music scene and all the bands are pretty comatose. This time last year, some people didn't want to hear. They looked at Jesus from afar. This year, he's a superstar. Dear John, who's more popular now? And Norman would explore interpersonal relational decay on the sadly romantic Pardon Me, and I've Got to Learn to Live Without You. Creative balance is worth noticing. Here, in 1972, before Christian rock had become a genre or an industry, we have an album that demonstrates a willingness to connect with listeners on an authentic level, relating to the fears and frustrations happening both outside and inside, so that the offer, Why Don't You Look Into Jesus, feels more like an invitation from a friend and less like a salvo in a culture war. While Only Visiting This Planet may not have been a bestseller, it remains a beloved classic amongst those who heard it in 1972 and in the decades since. What a mess the world is in, I wonder who began it. Don't ask me, I'm only visiting this planet. In 1973, Norman released part two of what he decided would be a trilogy. So Long Ago the Garden was darker and contained fewer direct references to Jesus. God's presence is felt more in his absence, with a subtle reference, really only almost discernible if you knew to listen for it, to the concept of the repercussions of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. The songs look at brokenness in all its forms. The production, once again, is stellar. Lots of warm Rhodes electric piano and more strings. Norman gets his Lou Reed on, though, in the gleefully sinister Faustian blues rocker, Be Careful What You Sign, one of the songs I was obsessed with from this record when I was a kid. I was walking down the road When I bumped into you I was walking down the road when I bumped into you mm, You stopped me You touched me You looked me in the eye I had the feeling that you knew me 
Another highlight is Nightmare number 71, a tune that cemented a sort of sub-genre for Norman. He was so good at these fast lyric impressionistic tunes that borrowed heavily from Dylan's subterranean homesick blues, but injected enough humor and cultural critique to work as rock and Rorschach tests. Last night I had that same old dream that rocked me in my sleep and left me the impression that the Sandman plays for keeps. I dreamed I was in concert on the middle of a cloud. John Wayne and Billy Graham were giving breath mints to the crowd. I fell through a hole in heaven. I left the stage for good. And when I landed on the earth, I was back in Hollywood. Between the lack of Jesus anthems and the cover art that seemed to, well, maybe show more of Norman than we wanted to see, So Long Ago the Garden definitely started to drive a wedge not only between Larry and the reliably anti-rock folks, but even between him and the growing audience for Jesus music. Fans wondered if he was going secular and rumors started flying. To some extent, the controversies helped build his brand as a true outsider. Behind the scenes, though, he had hit the end of the line with the major mainstream labels. As good as it was, Garden was also no breakthrough hit. So Norman leveraged his growing following on the fringes of the faith community to start his own label. Solid Rock Records was intended to have both mainstream and Christian distribution, and would feature his albums as well as top-notch projects from Randy Stonehill, Pantano Salisbury, Tom Howard, Mark Hurd, Daniel Amos, and others. It had the potential to be an alternative, faith-based rock and roll Camelot. Larry released the third installment of his trilogy, In Another Land, on Solid Rock. He produced it himself, and it included reworked versions of tracks from Planet, as well as songs from as far back as his street-level LP. In many ways, In Another Land was a best-of album, with several new songs, like The Opener, an old-school rock and roller that would become a fan favorite for the rest of his life, the rock that doesn't roll. Norman demonstrated his production chops throughout In Another Land and allowed those Broadway influences to creep in as well. Songs faded into each other and the whole thing felt like a soundtrack. Norman explained in interviews that as part of the trilogy, In Another Land was conceptually designed to focus on the future. He will come back like he promised with the price already paid. He will gather up his followers and take them Away. 
666, a perfect example of Norman's power with a three-chord folk song tapped right into the same apocalyptic antichrist-fearing ethos that had become a defining feature of modern evangelicalism by that point. In the midst of the war, he offered us peace. He came like a lover from out of the east with the face of an angel and the heart of a beast. His intentions were 666. Norman's mashup of the new song Diamonds with his reprise of his anthem One Way, which had been such a trademark song for him years earlier, served to remind the now well-established Christian music audience just who Larry Norman was. Norman later explained that it made sense to him that Christians would like In Another Land since it contained mellower sounds and lots of songs about the future and the coming of Christ. But looking back, it's pretty easy to see that he very carefully presented a project that the Jesus movement would relate to, but that kids like me could latch on to as well. With it, however, Larry Norman's primary creative era came to a close. release one more very roughly recorded blues-oriented project in 1981 that remains one of the most interesting, I think, in the annals of this whole scene. Something new under the sun, kind of like street level a decade earlier, though much more sonically accessible, is what we would now call an indie record. It is also a concept record in many ways, a true blues-based lament often directly ripping riffs and even lyrics from classic blues scenarios, Norman wallows in a swamp of remorse and misery. The album opens with a track that could not sound more unlike anything on In Another Land. Hard Luck, Bad News is tinny, lo-fi, and hopeless. My life's been lonely I've never heard a kindly word Ugly names is all I've heard and mean is how they treat me. Nobody trusts me, they blame me for the fires in town. Claim that hell is where I'm bound and pray that God will feed me. Hard luck and bad news, hard luck. 
But if he thought that was bad, he takes you even lower on the next track. Feeling so bad takes our character into stalker territory. We do start to realize, hopefully, we're not hearing Larry actually sing about himself here. Well, I'm feeling so bad In the middle of love And it's easy to see that it isn't quite me that you're thinking of Must be somebody else But I'm wondering who I can't seem to recall anybody at all who's in love with you It takes less than two minutes for I Feel Like Dying, despite demo-like production, to cement the desperation Larry's character is feeling. Then on, born to be unlucky, we see our first turnaround. It's raw, funny, evangelistic, and features some fantastic guitar work from Norman's longtime sideman, the late John Lynn. He said I'd done a very foolish thing to try to drown myself and die. And I told him, This odd album also includes one of my favorite Larry Norman songs of all time, Watch What You're Doing. I can't even imagine how many times I've played this song. Later I found out that Larry had lifted the classic opening line, Mama killed a chicken, thought it was a duck, put it on the table with its legs sticking up, from the Lead Belly song, Bottle Up and Go. Turns out much of this album was a tribute to the blues like that. Killed a chicken, she thought it was a duck. She put it on the table with his legs sticking up. Papa broke his glasses when he fell down drunk. Tried to drown the kitty cat, turned out to be a skunk. You gotta watch what you're doing. Didn't you know? Yeah, you gotta watch where you're going. Didn't you know? Larry's original song output declined in both quantity and some would argue quality from that point forward. Though he did release music in the 80s and 90s, Larry often attributed its hit or miss quality to health and other personal issues. Friends, the poor jukebox is about to overheat, so we're going to unplug her and let her cool down until next time. As I climb up on my soapbox this time, 
I realize I've probably already tipped my hand a bit here. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that our theme has been to listen to better music and to listen to music better because we suspect that in the process, the whole exercise might help us become better people. Obviously, when we talk about listening to music better, we're talking about discernment. Larry Norman gave me better music to listen to, especially with his early stuff. And he helped me learn to listen to music better by setting a pretty high bar for what Jesus followers could do with rock and roll. Larry Norman's story, however, has been a real challenge for me. Was he the persecuted pilgrim portrayed in his own songs, liner notes, and interviews? Or was he the deceitful villain portrayed by his detractors? Was he the renegade saint, the rock and roll sinner, or a little of both? And what was I to do with this complicated story? Should Norman be erased from our collective mixtapes because of the pain he caused, or celebrated because of the impact he made? Or does grace invite us to respond differently to a complicated story like Larry's? Is part of the invitation to spiritual adulthood that we put away the idolatry of youth, the need for simple answers, heroes and villains, and to accept that we're all complicated, messy characters in this story? Does discernment demand that we draw lines for ourselves around the people we will allow into our lives, the access we will grant them, and the times we say no, but that we also understand that moments of beauty often come into this world through deeply damaged vessels. I'm so glad I got this time with Larry's son, Mike, because it reaffirms for me the power of forgiveness and the beauty of finding peace with the most difficult people in our lives. If Mike can find peace with Larry, I think we all can. But that does not mean we simply sanction Larry's actions. There are people who have been hurt and who deserved to be made whole. I hope they were and still can be. But most of us are bystanders here with an opportunity to either walk by a tragedy without learning a thing, to pick up and hurl more stones, or to put a needle into a groove, listen to a song, and whisper a prayer. Thank God for grace. The most interesting art is often flawed. The best stuff, the most compelling stuff, frequently comes from the weak spots in the artist. The truly transcendent artists are the ones who find a way through practice, determination, courage, and sometimes just blind luck to push through their weakest places and into our hearts. Perfect art can be, well, kind of boring, but when beauty comes through someone, not despite their dents and fractures, but because of them, that's grace. Besides, there are no perfect people through which beauty can come anyway. There was one, but we killed him. I mentioned earlier that, in some ways, Larry Norman broke my heart, and that maybe that was a good thing. Let me explain. When I was a kid, I needed Larry, and Johnny Cash, now that I think about it, to be stand-ins for me. I used Norman and Cash as the role models of rock stars, and pastors in a way. I had my heart set on being just like them. It stung to find out that Larry was a mess. But while it may be fine for a kid to have his heart set on being like his idols, it's a mercy to have some light shed on what that actually means while there's still time to change course. My heart needed to break so that it could be reset and have the pieces put back into place. In the process, I also developed empathy, both for Larry and for the people he may have hurt. Because I know what pain feels like. That empathy allowed me to honor Larry later in his life, to serve him. It was a joy to play music with him. I wish Larry had had more time. Time to heal, time to rest. 
I love how Mike said he wonders how Larry sees things now that he can see clearly. That's grace. That's the perspective of a loving son who is at peace. That's beautiful. So here's to Larry Norman and Randy Stonehill and Terry Taylor and Mark Hurd and everyone else caught up in this messy story. May grace pour on all of us like rain and may we all settle our accounts long before the drummer hits that final beat. And to you, young artists out there, if you feel tempted by simple answers to complicated questions or people, resist. We're waiting for you in the tension. All right, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. I want to thank Mike Norman for his time and transparency today. Thank you always to my partner, Bruce A. Brown, for editing and co-producing this beast of a show. And to Kevin Max. Kevin's revisiting this Planet album. A tribute to Larry is amazing and is coming soon. We'll have him on the show before too long to talk about that and much more. You can find a detailed list of all of the music used in this episode on the show notes page at truetunes.com. Special thanks to longtime True Tunes pal Randy Layton for the loan of some great music from his Norman archives. Thanks also to Bruce Neer for custom remastering of the classic trilogy man that stuff has never sounded better and also thanks to phil keggy and rex paul for our theme song the special instrumental mix of full circle from their album illumination as always the contents of the podcast are protected by u.s copyright law and are the intellectual property of gyroscope productions with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten material everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions this program is intended for the private use of our listening audience gyroscope productions can be reached at true tunes music at gmail or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, I pray that peace, grace, and beautiful music finds you and fills your ears and heart. And to everyone wrestling with the mess of this life, here's to you. This is JJT saying stay tuned and stay true. I hope you had a great time. We love you. God bless every one of you. Good night. Bye-bye.